Have you noticed that freedom seems to be experienced most fully when we are at the end of something? When old responsibilities or fears or concerns or worries have faded into the background and into the past, there's something about being at the end and preparing for something new that allows freedom to flourish, to, to be alive. Maybe, maybe it even becomes fully, more, more fully clear at the end of life as we prepare for our own death. I heard last week about an Episcopalian priest who had fought cancer for a long time. He was finally in remission after years and years of struggle, but the remission lasted only for a few months and the cancer came back with a vengeance. He went to his doctor and his doctor said, we might be able to extend your life by a few weeks, perhaps not much more than a few days. You probably should make a decision. And the priest thought, I, I'm going to forego care. I'm going to live life on, on my terms and face death on my own terms. And then he discovered something in the midst of preparing for his death, that he had been set free to love in a way he never had before. He said to one of his colleagues in the parish that he served, it's as though my entire mind and heart and soul and body are opened up now to see love in ways I'd never seen before. All that matters is the love that was, the love that is, and the love that will be. A few weeks later, he died, and at his funeral, one of his colleagues said, in dying, he was fully alive. In dying, he was fully alive. That's, that's the fullness of freedom, is to be fully alive, to give our hearts and minds to love. In the series, I considered another voice to listen to for inspiration. It was actually from a speech by Senator John McCain delivered on election night in 2008, following his defeat by then-Senator Barack Obama. Do you remember that speech? In a sense, and frankly, it did come at the end, at the end of an election, and Senator McCain was free to speak to the American people. Listen to his words. My friends, we've come to the end of a long journey. The American people have spoken, and they have spoken clearly. A little while ago, I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we love. Do you hear the simple grace and beauty in those words? He was set free in the moment the campaign was over. He could have chosen enmity, strife, anger, frustration, fear-mongering, all kinds of things. But in that moment, in the moment of his defeat, he chose grace and love of country. Simple and yet pure and beautiful. Washington's farewell address, which we read from earlier in the service today, was delivered near the end of his second and final term in office on September 19, 1796. He, he said somewhere in that document that he was going to use this moment as a, as a chance for giving advice to the American people, a people that he had grown to love greatly. In something of a revolutionary act, he didn't deliver it before a legislative body or a gathering of a crowd. He instead had it published in a newspaper so that it could go directly to the American people, from him to them. It's a 6,000-word address. Three of the primary concerns that are there in this long speech are hyper-partisanship, foreign wars, and excessive debt. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Washington worked hard on all of those issues and more, but he wanted to, to be clear at the end of what would be his final time in office 
that the American people had the strength and the courage within to move forward in a way that he hoped and prayed they would. Today we've also heard from the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote to a church in Galatia. Galatia is a, a portion of southern Turkey. We're not exactly sure where this community might have been. It might have been a larger area, but there's, a, there's an issue in the Galatian church that Paul wants to address. I'm fairly certain, or at least I believe strongly, that the Apostle Paul had what we would call a near-death experience that inspired him to go forward into this ministry. You might remember, if you've read through the book of Acts, that prior to him being called Paul, he was known as Saul, and he was one who persecuted Christians. There's a story early in the book of Acts about Paul standing up to the side holding the coats of a group who are killing Stephen by stoning. Stephen was an early leader in the church. Paul is on his way to Damascus when he was still called Saul, on his way to Damascus to do more of the same, to persecute Christians, to maybe perhaps again stand by as some are being killed. But on the way, he has, a, he has a, a, an experience that knocks him to the ground. He sees a bright light, he hears a voice, and the next thing you know, he's changing his name, and he's essentially saying, here am I, Lord, send me, and he's been set free in this near-death experience to live a new life, and he instead moves out into the Mediterranean as the greatest missionary still to this day that the world has ever seen, speaking freely the love and grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God given to the world. In the church in Galatia, they're kind of at an end too. You, maybe you heard the, the reading at the very end. If you keep biting, biting and devouring each other, you're just going to consume each other and fall apart. It's, a, it's like a harsh word from your harsh third grade teacher. Did you have a harsh third grade teacher? I did. I can still hear her words. Well, and my fourth grade teacher was harsh, and so was my fifth grade. <laughs> it, it couldn't have been me. I'm sure it was the teacher. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. Basically, what Paul is saying is stop this. The way you're acting and behaving is so immature. If you keep this up, your church is going to die. You're going to fade and fall apart. You can't act like this. He tells them, essentially, you've been made free by Jesus' life and teaching. That simple instruction to love neighbor is an invitation to love in the same way with those in who, with whom you're in relationship with, with those in whom you find along the way of life. The issue in this church, though, was was power and control. There was this old theology, it's around the issue of circumcision, won't get into that today, but basically, they were using that issue by some as a way to control what we might call the other. They're essentially saying, you must be exactly like us or you're not really part of us, and we're gonna keep you on the edge of our community in the margins of, of our church society if necessary. And Paul challenges them to see not the other as foreign or outside, but part of the family of God. Today in the United States of America, we could use a good dose of President Washington and his understanding of the needs of this great land. Today in the United States, the churches that cover the, this, this country could also use a good dose of the Apostle Paul and a nice sprinkling, a heavy sprinkling of the teaching of, of Jesus. I'm struck by the clarity of both Paul's and Washington's words and, and the way they speak to issues and concerns that continue to to hamper us even now. In fact, Washington at one point in his speech names some of the struggles that our early American mothers and fathers faced as this country was being formed. And he says to them, and again I'm quoting, the independence and liberty. Do you hear that phrase? The independence and liberty. In other words, the freedom you possess are the work of joint councils. Washington was concerned 
that a hyper-partisanship that was developing then could, could eventually result in the tearing apart of the country. He wants them to see that despite their differences, despite their variety of backgrounds and all the different influences that were there in their life in that time, they still found a way through what he calls joint councils to work together toward liberty, freedom, new life. He says in the speech that we read earlier, the section we read earlier, hyperpartisanship will lead to a frightful despotism. I had to look up the word despot just to be sure I, I knew what that was. It's somebody who is uh, an authoritarian. It is someone who rules by absolute power in a cruel or oppressive kind of way. Despotism seeks absolute authority. Despotism seeks to say there are them and there is us. They always continually marginalize the other, find things about the other that can put them down, tear them apart, push them aside, ignore them if necessary, attack them if needed. There is no room for nuance. There is no room for conversation. There is no room for mutuality, for councils coming together to discuss. Perhaps you've experienced this very idea, if not in the country, maybe even in your family. Consider the issue of divorce. It's probably the most difficult thing a child must face. And it's true for that child, whether it's five or 25. It's tougher on the young one. It's much, much tougher on the little one. The little one doesn't understand and really can't begin to comprehend. But I, I knew a young man whose parents got a divorce when he was 24. The father called him and said, I'd like to sit down with you if I could. Sat down together over a, over a Diet Coke. And the dad said to the son, the 24-year-old young man, you've got to make a decision. You've got to choose. Either it's her or me. Which one will you remain in contact with? You can't, you can't do anything in any of this loving both of us. You've got to decide. And the son said, are, are you kidding me? I, I, I love you. I love mom. How would I, how would I choose one over the other? There's no, no, no. You make a decision. You cannot have it both ways. The relationship between the father and the son because of that was strained even to the last day of the father's life. I know this story well because it's mine. This kind of, of divide, of pulling apart, of, of, of wanting absolute authority can destroy a family, a church, a business, even a country. This is the kind of stuff that was going on in the church in Galatia. They were creating a group of others, us and them, them and us. No middle ground, no, no nuance, no conversation. And, and Paul is so frustrated at one point in the third chapter of his letter, he says, you foolish Galatians. It's kind of a good thing, by the way, that Paul was a visiting preacher. <laughs> Probably a good thing. But he's just had it up to here. I know that sounds harsh and judgmental, but the way they're fighting and the, the things they're doing to each other is just ripping everything apart. He wants them to understand what matters, what's core, what's, what are their core values, what's central to who they are. And then just a few verses later after that, after that terrible description of them as fools, he says, do you not remember that there are no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You are all one. 
That's what he's been driving at. That's what he wants him to understand. That's what he wants him to see. He's saying in the church, we followers of Jesus are united in our freedom to love one another. Will there be disagreements? Yes. Will there be squabbles? Yes. Will there be hard decisions and, and, and misunderstandings? Of course, of course, of course. But all of these tough conversations that we should never shy away from will always be done in the mutuality of love. Always. How do we do this? I think it begins by walking down a road named vulnerability, by following another pathway named intimacy. It's in our willingness to be vulnerable with the other where we discover our commonality more so than our differences. There's a story from Washington's career that goes back to the very end of the Revolutionary War. The war has been, has been ended, the, the Continental Army has gotten a little bit smaller. It's down to about 500 soldiers. But there's a lot of frustration among Washington's officers and the soldiers who are remaining because the Continental Congress isn't functioning very well. And one of the issues the soldiers have, rightly so, is they're not being paid. And the supplies are coming not very well. And they're frustrated and they're angry. And all of a sudden, there's a secret meeting being called that they didn't say anything to General Washington about. Instead, these officers plotted in secret to gather together. It kind of was, one historian said, it looked like the beginnings of a coup d'etat. They were going to try to overthrow the government. There was even an idea that they might try to make Washington king, make him the monarch. Well, Washington got word of this, and he came to their secret meeting with a prepared speech, and he read his speech to them. The speech was going well, and it was beginning to turn the tide in, in a way that was instructive for us in American history when he talked about moderation and careful consideration and thought and how those can be frustrating at times, but in the long run, that will be a strength of our country. But it's said that the officers in the room finally turned. When Washington paused, he sort of wiped his brow, pushed his gray hair back on his head, and he said, not only is my hair turning gray, but my eyes are going blind in the service of my country. And he, he fumbled around to find his glasses so that he could continue to read his speech. It's said that the officers in the room began to weep in that moment. They saw Washington as this strong, almost invulnerable man. He was six feet, two inches tall. Back then, not very many people were six two. He was tall and strong and powerful and in their minds, invulnerable. But here he was in this moment, in this intimate moment, allowing them to see him in weakness. And it was then that the risk through the risk of intimacy, that he was able to stop in infamous history from repeating again. This may be the greatest lesson we learn from this beautiful and powerful president in his remarkable time in office. It is in the act of vulnerability in intimacy that we see each other as our true selves. What was it Brene Brown says about the word courage? Courage means, yes, an act of bravery, but at its root, it means to speak from the heart, to let your heart lead. Sometimes the most courageous thing we do in life is let our heart communicate to the world who we are and how we are. Yes, courage is about daring deeds, but it also describes a kind of inner strength that helps us to stand up even when times are difficult and tough, even in times when we may need to apologize or admit a mistake. A pastor told me about a member of her church 
who offended another member of the congregation. It was a terrible, terrible mistake. A week later on a Sunday morning, he knew that he needed to talk to her, to the woman that he had offended. He was a member of the choir, and so it was before the church service started, about a quarter to 11. He was out on the front steps of, of their church. The wind was blowing. His choir robes were billowing in the wind. When the woman that he'd hurt pulled up in her car, she got out. She walked up to the steps, and the pastor watched this entire thing unfold. She said that the man who'd been so offensive reached out his hands and said, in sincere words, I am so sorry. I was very wrong. All she did without a word was walk up to him and warmly embrace him. The pastor told me that even to this day, they remain very best of friends. She said, it was such a gentle, sweet, and intimate moment. And I remember it well because of its rarity. How rare it is, isn't it? in today's world, in our culture today, that one is able to acknowledge a mistake, to simply name a, a, an issue, to seek forgiveness. And not only to seek it, but to give it. What, what, my goodness, what would happen in the, in the church if, if we could find the, the, the courage that we need to let our vulnerable, intimate selves lead the way? Not for power and control, but for love and openness, for our full humanity, to be alive. What would happen, what would happen for goodness sakes in Washington, D.C. if our political leaders could discover the same kind of courage? What would happen? You know, as I read through Washington's speech this week, read through it a couple of times, I, I couldn't help but recall, especially as I encountered these stories about his life and his willingness to be vulnerable in, in, in different ways, I, I couldn't help but recall a couple of stories from the time when President Reagan was assassinated. Some of you may remember that day. Some of you may have to read history books to learn more about it. It was a while ago, but I, I recall a story that, that after he'd survived the shooting, he was being wheeled into surgery and was walking down the hallway on the, on the gurney with the surgeon who was going to do the operation. And, the, and, and President Reagan, in typical wit, looked up at the surgeon and said, Doctor, I hope you're a Republican. <laughs> And the doctor, a well-known, very liberal Democrat, said, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. Why is it? Why does it take a tragedy or a near tragedy? Why does it take, why does it take our, 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 uh, something terrible happening before we recognize that we have a common goal, a commonality, a common way of living and being together? Why does it take something terrible like this to happen? You remember uh, the, the time at, not long after 9-11, when President Bush was on the floor of Congress and Tom Daschle, the liberal Democrat, came up to him and they embraced almost without words. Why does it take a tragedy for us to find our commonality? I, I, I'm remembering another story from that time when President Reagan was shot. It's two days after the operation was over. Most of America didn't know back then that President Reagan was in dire straits. His life was truly in danger. Someone, though, came to see him. Very few visitors were allowed, but one of them was Tip O'Neill, the very liberal Democrat who was the Speaker of the House during most of Reagan's presidency. They fought about everything. 
They, they, were, they frustrated each other all the time. They were t constantly at each other's political ideas and ideals, and yet they'd formed a friendship. Mr. O'Neill came into the room, and he got on his knees, and he took a hold of the president's hand, and he gave a prayer, and then together they recited the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The president, in a whisper, said, Thank you for coming, Tip. It's good to see you. And then the Speaker of the House stood up, leaned over, and kissed President Reagan on his forehead and said to him in a quiet voice, I'll let you rest now. What was it the, the Apostle Paul wrote to that angry, fighting church in Galatia? For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You were called not only to use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but as an opportunity to be slaves in love to one another. We have been set free to love one another. All it will take is a little courage, something we already have in every one of our hearts. Amen.